Excess for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I need a hero. I'm holy lover, a hero till the end of the night. Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and making our way through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. As always, I am your host, Nico, and with me today is our most uncanny host, our newest mutant, it's Jonah. Hello everyone, yes, yes, it is true, I am a mutant. Uh, my mutant powers include being able to critique other people's work. Well, that is a highly important superpower here on X's for Podcast, because we have quite a bit of work in front of us to critique today. We have been moving so swiftly through this material. I'm almost surprised at just how far we've come and yet how not as far as you kind of would think we are. When we started this, we started with Giant Size number 1 and went right into X-Men 94. Along the way, we've covered something like 30 X-Men issues, as today we'll be covering 122 to 124. We've seen tons of special appearances, some giant-sized issues. Now we're hitting annuals. We've covered the champions in its entirety, unfortunately. But at the same time, while we've covered so much, it feels like these are still babies in so many ways. So, Jonah, how has it been for you, you know, four years, because we started in 1975 and now it's 1979, so four years and 30 regular issues plus another 20-something backup, How, where are you at in your X-Men read? Uh, I think it's a pretty fascinating and interesting discussion to talk about this, because as Nico said, we haven't covered that many issues, but we've covered enough. And a lot of these issues, the most of the arc, the longest these arcs have ever been are have been three, three issues. And we actually haven't had something like a really big event, like the arc that we're coming up on. But we have so much information packed in these issues. But there, not much is going on in the overall big picture. We're having a lot of little individual stories that are all accumulating into what is going to be much bigger arcs. And I find that such a fascinating storytelling device and way to do it because it's not the same. It's not – I think that's it. That's all I have to say on that. And I completely get you because while we've had these bigger events, we had – 97 through 99 with the X-Men in space and that incredible image of Banshee's like floating and not being able to breathe. And we've had Phoenix Rising, that sort of 101 to 103 area, and that incredible arc in space, 105 to 108. But each of these have been three, four issues. The Savage Land was three or four issues, and so much happened in it, but it's so self-contained. And as soon as you get back to New York, it's like the Savage Land is sort of gone. And all of these little pictures are adding up to a much larger picture, and we are in for some treats. Today we're going to be covering the first proper appearance of Arcade in Uncanny X-Men. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Proteus, one of the most famous stories in Claremont and Burns' oeuvre. And then it's Dark Phoenix Saga, the biggest X-Men story ever through this point. It's been really interesting watching these characters evolve, because... I feel like they've come so far, and we're going to talk a lot about that this episode, because this episode is heavy on the characterization. And just to mention, we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men 122 through 124, Classic X-Men 28 through 30, and Marvel Team-Up number 89, as well as Uncanny X-Men Annual number 3. 
A lot of this stuff has some interesting caveats attached to it. Most notably, the backup in Classic X-Men 28 actually almost works as a flashback. Even though it was packaged as part of Uncanny 122, the events of that backup story take place during 109 to 110, which kind of makes some of this keeping track of what's been going on with the X-Men trickier. And I see how all of these little stories do come together to build this big picture, but if you don't know that this story takes place in between 109 and 110, it's so jarring that Gene and Scott are just randomly together again as a couple, because meanwhile, and it's starting to drive me nuts, maybe it's because we live in the technological internet computer age, but I am starting to be mind-blown at the number of people who know both Gene and Scott are alive and don't seem to be telling them. Yeah, we, Nico and I, we're, we're in an age, techno- technologically-wise, where we have a lot of easy access for communication. It's very easy for us to call someone up that we like and tell them new information or what, whatever. But even though that's where we are right now, there are a few too many people who know that Gene, both separately, Gene and Scott are alive, think the other one is dead, and yet are still helping each other in weird love triangles. It's so bizarre, and it's a very... It's asking... I think it's asking readers to suspend their disbelief a little too much. There's a little too much going on where I'm, I would have trouble believing it. And part of it for me is because... Scott is dating Colleen Wing, who is Misty Knight's partner. Misty Knight is Jean's roomie. Misty saw Jean off on her way to Muir Island, and then, like, hung out with Scott right afterward. It's just getting... Okay, well, before I blow a gasket trying to talk about this, let's dive in and talk about what we're going to be covering a little bit more today. We're going to be taking a look at Uncanny 122 and 124 first. Now, like everything else in the Uncanny run that we're looking at, this is by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Classic X-Men 28 and 30 are Anne Nesenti, and Classic X-Men 29 is Chris Claremont with June Brigman. Marvel Team-Up number 89 is a script by Chris Claremont and pencils by Mike Nasser and Rich Buckler. But then... The strangest piece we're going to talk about today, and probably the most disappointing in this read, is Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 3, which is a script by probably one of the most famous comic writers of all time, Chris Claremont, pencils by arguably the guy who invented the look of the modern superhero, George Perez, who is so famous for his run on Teen Titans and New Teen Titans, with a cover by Frank Miller. This is an incredible number of people who came together to make what is easily one of the most boring issues ever. Yeah, I I completely agree. You would think with an all-star team like that for the issue, it would turn out well. I think it just falls apart so easily, and it's it's not interesting. It's When we get to it, we'll talk about why we have problems with it. I think it has a, a little too much shoved force characterization. I agree, and it's really choreographed at times. But, 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 before we can get any further, Jonah, you want to tell us about the contents of these books we're going to be reading today? Absolutely, I would love to. Uncanny X-Men number 122 to 124. We go through a training montage where Colossus finds his place on the team thanks to Wolverine and Cyclops. Banshee and Nightcrawler become mechanics, and we get a glimpse of what Charles and Lalandra are up to. 
Spoiler, they aren't having much fun in space. Jean bumps into Jason Wingard, who foreshadows the Hellfire Club. There is a love in the air for some X-Men, while Storm makes her way into Harlem, fights off the inhabitants of a crack den. We see the duo of Black Tom and Juggernaut in the airplane of none other than Arcade! This is all in the first issue, by the way. Arcade captures the X-Men and subjects them to torture, which includes brainwashing Colossus to being an even bigger stereotype. Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 3 After yet another training room mishap, Storm gets in her head about being a hero. Archon makes his return for the third time to exact some sort of plan on the Avengers. When they aren't home, he shifts focus to Storm kidnapping her. The rest of the team follows suit and in true X-Men fashion end up helping the people who don't deserve help. Marvel Team-Up Number 89 Nightcrawler meets his girlfriend Amanda at the airport when he runs into Arcade. But instead of calling the X-Men, he decides to follow the man who turned his time at the circus to a bad experience. Amanda tags along for the whole adventure. Classic X-Men number 28. It's an almost murder mystery night as Nightcrawler tries to prevent the murder from happening at a costume party. Classic X-Men number 29. Colossus returns to his motherland only to live his worst nightmare of being deemed a traitor. Classic X-Men number 30. We dive into the abusive, torturous past of Arcade as he tries to figure out who is messing with Murder World. And you know, it's such an interesting thing that we're discussing because... Arcade even has, like, a weird, subtle side appearance, kind of, sort of, in Marvel Team-Up number 89. It's what Chris Claremont was trying to do by interweaving all of these plots, and this issue goes here, and this issue goes there. It is some of what we've been talking about, where the Marvel Team-Ups make things a little too confusing, but I do think that this Marvel Team-Up was one of the lightest and easiest we've discussed yet. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, this Marvel Team-Up actually features Spider-Man, who's previously te- been teamed up with Nightcrawler, and we've talked about how this makes sense because they're very much similar in how their fighting styles which will play a part into the plot of the Marvel team-up. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Me too, because I'm like, we that's what happens. These stories, even when they're not great, they're so engaging. We want to talk about them in their totality right away. You can't think of any place better to start than Uncanny 122. You know, it starts with that amazing Cyclops, Colossus, and Logan danger room scenario, and Colossus is like, duh, I can't do it. And, like, Logan's like, yeah, bub, you can't. Stab, stab. And blows up the computer panel with his claws, basically. So Colossus has to save himself, or he'll die. And Scott is like, Logan, what a terrible plan, and now you need to fix the computer. But, I don't know, part of it reads like, Scott's almost annoyed that Logan was able to connect with Peter in a way that he couldn't, and I think we get so much characterization in just, like, five pages in a way that I feel like we've been lacking from Colossus. The book even acknowledges that Colossus hasn't had a whole lot of story since the Magneto battle, and it's been so fascinating watching this team come together this way. Now, I feel like for you, Jonah, this had to be the first, like, older brother kind of avuncular figure, Logan, so far. I don't think you've seen this side of him yet. No, I like in this Logan, I like to, I want to call him uh, the fun uncle, who's always a little bit too drunk, gives you a drink, and then gives you the questionable life advice. That's who I think Logan is. And that's who I thought he was in the scene. I think he did a really good job of reaching Colossus and inspiring him and telling him, Listen, bub. Your family, but you got to push yourself and you actually have to try. And Colossus, through these words, is like, Daddy, you are right. I should try. And Colossus is a massive powerhouse. And it's, it's, it was a really nice moment because Colossus still is a wet blanket, but it's nice to see story wise, we're trying to get him 
to be a bigger character and more well-rounded and have different personality traits. I think that's nice. So we're looking for him to go from wet blanket to soppy comforter. Just about. I'll take it. And, you know, it's really funny because they're talking about how Colossus can't stand up for himself and how he feels defeated. And the first thing he does is stand up for Wolverine. He tells Cyclops that he thinks that Scott was a little too hard on Logan. But, I don't know, considering, like, Logan just trashed the danger room, I I don't know. I also can't figure out how they afford to keep repairing the danger room. Maybe it's things like Colleen Wing just always hanging around and being super helpful or Nightcrawler and Banshee who are suddenly mechanics. Okay. That was one of the curious little pages. It, there's, there's only like two panels of it, not even. I think Nightcrawler looks so adorable in his little mechanic getup. He has a cute little red hat on, got the green jumpsuit, and he's just happy to be there. He is literally just happy to be part of a family and to do whatever they need help with. He's like, what's up, boss? What do you need? And Cyclops is like, I like that attitude. (laughs) And you know what? Who can blame them? They've been all over the world, and every time they're home, they're attacked by someone. This is probably the first time Nightcrawler's gotten to, like, hang around and just be like, Ja, me, three fingers, hanging home. Like, I don't, like, I feel like there is no point in their lives where, like, Kurt can just lay back in a jock strap and not have to worry that someone's going to interrupt him while he's watching his German cartoons. And I feel like it, it's such a great moment because Banshee is still managing to be a vital part of the team and the story, despite the fact that his powers are gone. Yeah, it's really, it's it's nice. It's We're not seeing Banshee succumb to a form of depressive state because of his handicap right now with his power set. He's still doing whatever he can to help this team. He's still trying to be a helpful man, and I really respect that for Banshee. Meanwhile, Xavier is off in space, pouting. All the time. Just pouting. Charles is not happy. He says he is so bored with all of these theatrics and ceremonies for Lalandra, and that that what her people are doing, and he's just like, we should have stayed home. How do you tell your empress girlfriend that she should have given up her throne because you're bored? I don't know, because apparently Lalandra was going along with it because she even she even agreed with him. I love that she's like, give me strength. And I want to be like, um, okay. Like, have you never ran a galaxy before? Because it seems like something that you do. Like, and <laughs> it's it's so interesting because this issue is built of so many small moments We get that little bit of Scott and Colleen. We get that little bit of Kurt and Sean. We get a page of Charles and Lalandra. And the next thing you know, we're off in Muir Island, and Gene is bumping into Jason Wingard. You know, so much of what Gene's been going through has been so subtle and done so small in the background. And we get the first real hint that something crazy is happening here. On this page, uh, where the page after Gene bumps into Jason Wingard for the first time, There's this moment where Jason is smoking in front of a brick wall, and his shadow projected on the wall clearly doesn't match his form. It's such an excellent bit of seating. And he begins to talk about the Hellfire Club, which, if you are reading Uncanny Proper, this is revelation and mind-blowing. If you're reading Classic, you've, I don't know, met the entire fucking Hellfire Club by now, and you know everything about them, including their blood type and social security number. It's really irritating. But, you know, Jonah, there actually is something funnier about this page. You had made a funny comment. I said, you know, uh, that 
something about this page having a lot of people on it. And you made a joke about the, the women's faces? Yes. Okay, so if you look at the art with the pages that have Jean, Moira, and Colleen all on the exact same page, they have the exact same face. John Byrne looked like he cut and pasted for them and like, thought no one would notice. And it really does not help that Colleen, Jean, and Moira all have a very similar hair color. You cannot tell who is who. It's a little creepy. Well, and Polaris has the same hairstyle as Jean in a different color. There's a joke that if you bought the Essential Editions, which were black and white trade paperback reprints on news copy, so like the the ink kind of came off on your fingers when you would read it even, you could never tell what you were looking at if there weren't caption boxes. But I do believe that roughly 10 pages or so into this issue, 122, there's that few panels in a row, and it's Jean, Moira, and polaris and they're right above scott and colleen in a different scene and you're just like nope that's that's the same face on four ladies that's that's the same face so speaking of of scott and um colleen we have we're diving a little bit more into their relationship and colleen is trying to keep things as casual as possible and let things just go as naturally as they can but she's admitting that she has hard feelings for cyclops but my favorite thing about this is that cyclops asks her Am I stuffy? And she says, yes, you are. You are very stuffy. There's something nice and charming and sweet underneath all that stuffiness, but you are a complete, you are basically a mattress. It's it's so important that somebody says that to him because he's so stuffy. And now this also brings to one line within this issue, and Nico kind of brought it up uh, previously, where are they getting money from? Scott makes a remark saying he needs to call Moira in order to get funds because they're using his money and they're running out. I have a severe problem with this only because we know where Jean is. Moira knows Jean's alive. She doesn't apparently know the other X-Men are alive or whatever. But please do not throw that in our face. That feels a little bit like a slap. Like, oh, see, we're, we're so close to it. We oh, This almost could have happened weeks ago because we don't know exactly how long the X-Men have been home from Canada. But I, I just don't like that line. I think it was in poor taste, maybe. The X-Men's funding is always a complicated discussion because they're always just kind of getting money from somewhere unless the story is they're broke. Now, later on, there's little things like basically they will never run out of money again because of Wolverine, which sounds silly, but, you know, Logan's a million years old and he's got a lot of money all over the place. And that's actually a really great segue point. The next page features Logan, but it also features Storm. And I can't think of, for the life of me, the last issue of Uncanny X-Men where you could have gotten 10 or 11 pages in before Storm even appeared. No, for real. This is, I think it's one of Storm's latest appearances in an issue. And I think that's so, it's so interesting because Storm, when it comes to characterization and plot lines and just everything about a story, Storm is always at the forefront of it. She's always basically in every scene and is always saying something. She's not in this until about halfway in, which is really interesting. More interesting than that, she's actually the cover of the classic version of the issue. So... It's, it's so fascinating, because Colossus kind of dominates the first half, and he's on the original cover, and then Storm dominates the second half, and she's on the other cover? It, and the Storm plot here is a little weird. They're trying to tell us that Storm is going through Harlem 
to find out more about her parents, where they met, and they're acting like this might be her first time alone in the city, and I feel like that can't work with the classic stories we've read, like the one where she's attacked by that security guard on the rooftop. So there is something a little jarring about telling us this is like an early storm out on her own adventure, but so she goes to this crack den, and they decide that she has to pay to leave because they're crazy crack addicts, and she comments that they're like jackals, yet they're actually just children, and she doesn't have a choice. She has to defend herself, and she uses her mutant abilities, and someone's about to get the drop on her when, out of nowhere, Luke and Misty show up. Luke Cage and Misty Knight, both of whom had been written by Claremont at one point, and we just saw them last episode in the Power Man, Iron Fist versus the Living Monolith issues, so, you know, they're kind of fresh in our mind, and we saw Misty Knight in Japan, and again, Misty knows Jean's alive! It's making me mad! Yeah, it was a little bit of a very, very much a deus ex machina for Storm. Uh, we don't we don't really know why Storm... She says she's... Storm is claiming she's looking for something, but she doesn't say what it is, and having her go through go to Harlem and fight a Crackden... I think it. I don't think it's written very well for the time, and then now reading it years later, it comes off a certain way that I don't think you want to come off. I I don't see why this needed to dominate so much of this comic. It, I, th- I I I just had a problem with this part of the story. You know, the late eighties and <clears throat> you know the late seventies and early eighties were an era where comics were trying to become more socially aware, more relevant, and. I think this was an attempt at tying into the real hard truth of Harlem, not just setting stories there, but portray Harlem in some way. It's unfortunate that it comes off, you know, mildly racist, but at least some of the crack denizens, I guess, are white. And I mean that really seriously, that this wasn't trying to be hard-hitting by depicting black life in Harlem being depicted by an entirely white creative team. So... I do think they tried, but unfortunately, time makes fools of us all. And this scene does not play out very well. The ending ties up pretty quickly, and maybe a little too fast for me. And it leads us to another thing that happens too fast. Colleen just gives Scott a key to her apartment. Like, hey, what's up? I know you're dead girlfriend and all. And she's not really dead, but let's bang at my place. <laughs> it's just kind of like, oh, this is, this is just snuck right in here. This is, this is just like right here, isn't it? Okay. It, it really is. It's, I appreciate Colleen's very forwardness about it, but I'm going to feel bad for her because I know that Jean and Scott are going to get back together and she's just going to have to be out of the picture. She's just going to be left to the dust. And it's, it's. Exactly what you said earlier. There's so many little stories that came together to make this issue, and the ending is no different. What's crazy is you described, like, 80% of this three-issue arc, and then said, oh, by the way, that's all the first issue? And really, all the plot for this entire arc is in the first issue. On the last two pages, we get Miss Locke allowing Black Tom and Juggernaut to see a secret fellow that they're looking to hire to defeat the X-Men. And it's Arcade, our good buddy from the Spider-Man, Captain Britain, team-up, Marvel Team-Up 65 and 66. 
As you all know, I'm a huge arcade fan, and it's great to finally see him fuck with the X-Men. That said, it's two pages that come out of nowhere, and then the next issue is so much setup, it makes me tired. First of all, this next issue, 123, begins with so much Spider-Man, and so much Spider-Man that references the Marvel team-up, it's hard to imagine that it's not just the rehash of the previous issue. Down to the incredible arcade people-eating-garbage truck comes back and swallows Cyclops. And Kevo in the background just said, thank God, because that was Kevo's favorite part of that two-part issue. And it's back. And it's crazy because Spider-Man is in so much of this issue as all of these people get kidnapped. You know, Kurt and Peter are on a date. Kurt with his, and I'm going to be really honest with you, ongoing love interest for many, many years, Amanda, and Peter on a date with some woman named Betsy. And they're tricked at the opera into going into what they think is a private booth, but it's really a fire exit that leads them to a metal cage where they are then airlifted by helicopter to Murder World. The X-Men are defeated so overwhelmingly quickly by Arcade, it's silly. Okay, but I think that's part of what makes Arcade a little bit great, is that Arcade is a very campy villain. He's very much reliant on a little bit a bit, little bit of gags, a little bit of of just it's just camp and i think it's really funny to read we have the people eating garbage truck is so ridiculous and so over the top that it's hysterical uh kurt and peter being tricked into a fire escape thinking it's a private booth that charles usually goes into is also really hysterical it's i think that's part of the part of a little bit of charm about this about this issue is that it's so how they get captured is a little over the top and a little bit um a little bit campy. However, the way Banshee and Storm get captured, it's a, it doesn't match the level of campiness at all. It's not campy at all. They're just captured at home. Um, I have my only little problem with Storm getting captured the way she is because she was in the shower before she got captured. And we see Storm get captured in a robe. And it's the most explicit I've seen Storm drawn. She's had less clothing on, and she hasn't been this explicit. And I just was just like, that, that wasn't needed. These are trained battle heroes for how, for how long now? And you're telling me they were so easily subdued in their own home? Yeah, and we don't even see how Logan's kidnapped. Logan is on a date with Mariko, who he saw was in New York last issue. And this issue, he manages to get a date with her. And then somebody bums a light off of him, and the guy is wearing the Arcade A on his hat. And then in the background, you see the garbage truck coming. That's it. Like, you just have to defeat the X-Men somehow. So Spider-Man calls the X-Men to warn them. And he <laughs> he gets the phone just at the wrong time. And Arcade picks up the call. And it's so silly that Spider-Man then, like, blows out the phone booth that he's in. He just shatters it. <laughs> but... You know, one of the things I really appreciated is, Jonah, you had the most unfucking believably funny point when we were discussing this. You pointed out that the X-Men were all kidnapped, not in their uniforms. And when they wake up in their giant pinballs, they're all in their uniforms. There is some implicit, sort of creepy, kind of uncomfortable that Arcade might have actually changed their clothes for them. 
Like, yes, this is... It's so weird. Scott even remarks on it that, oh, we're in costume. What? Okay, so this means one of a few things, and one of them that Nico pointed out. This means that Arcade made these costumes already and had them on hand in case they weren't in costume. Or, Nico said when we were discussing it, he raided their house to find their costumes to put them on. It is so... It was so stupid. Yeah, it really it's, it's, it's something else because, and like, Arcade is this, Arcade is amazing because Arcade is kind of purposely looks like a child, but at the same time, he is drawn very much as a man and he's made kind of like thick for his stature and he's very devilish, devilishly handsome and kind of disarming. And there's something always a little creepy, put you in the toy box, but also looks at you as a sexual object, kind of like, uh, there's something really creepy about Arcade at all times, that I enjoy. Arcade is one of my favorite X-Men villains, and I think most Arcade stories are fascinating. It's interesting that the last time we talked about Arcade was actually in the previous episode of The Champions, where it's revealed that Toad has purchased a version of Murder World from Arcade. In the end, his defeat is weirded by Warren convincing him to turn it into just a theme park. Forget the fact that he's a terrorist, just turn it into a theme park. And it's just kind of like, that's a bad use of Murder World. This is a more interesting use of Murder World. My only real complaint about this use of Murder World is none of the traps feel particularly designed for anyone. Logan is just in a hall of mirrors. Storm is just on a platform over some water. It would appear that Nazis are shooting at Banshee, which he remarks is like a pinball game. Other than maybe the cars that are flying at Nightcrawler could be a reference to the German Autobahn. I just feel like normally I'm used to Arcade's Murder World being a really clever contraption that is designed to bring down the heroes in it. And in this case... With the exception of Colossus getting reprogrammed into wearing some sexy overalls, there's really not anything unique to these heroes for this fight. No. Um, something that I, I noticed is that, well, they're in the original pinball contraption, which seems to be an arcade staple. Uh, they, when they eventually make their way down towards the bottom of it, there are like six holes that they each all fall into one of them. I'm pretty sure he couldn't control who went where, so he pretty much had to rely on very generic traps. But I agree, it would have been more nice if he had very um, intricate rooms for each specific um, X-Men to try to bring them all down individually, because the X-Men work best as a team, but when they're in individual rooms designed to counter them, there's not much they can do. Um, So Nico talked about this. Colossus doesn't actually get tortured. A member of the KGB brainwashes Colossus into thinking the X-Men made him a traitor and that he needs to serve Mother Russia. And then he puts on overalls and he calls himself the proletarian. And I was like, this is such a weird insert into this into this uh, story. It really... I... You know, I don't even know what to do with part of it. Like, I, I find... On the whole, I actually find this three-part arc really enjoyable. I would probably have made it two issues. I think you could compress it in slightly different ways. But 
there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. Like, whether it's us getting that Colossus is so, for lack of a better term, uh, not sure of who he is, that mind-washing works on him that quickly, or it's seeing Arcade's unbelievably jacked body by the pool, or it's getting a little bit more of the backstory that led to his involvement with Spider-Man and Captain Britain. This is a really fun arc, and the only really disappointing thing about it, after Colossus is wailing on the X-Men for a little bit, and everybody has to break out of their traps, traps including fighting robots of Hulk and Magneto and trying to drown Storm, at the end of the day, they're able to like deprogram Colossus with the power of love, and Arcade's just like, oh, well, fuck. I didn't win. Bye, guys. And just leaves. Yeah, Arcade just pieces out. Uh, the way they snap Colossus out, I think, is a little anticlimactic and cheap. They just basically say, you're our little brother, we love you, you're our family. And he's like, Dottie, you are right, you are a family! And then he like almost smushes them when he hugs them. It's It was just really weird. It almost felt like... They wanted to use that storyline for Colossus, but they had no idea where to shove it in. And then they were also like, but we also want to use Arcade. Okay, let's put them together and no one will notice. I completely agree. It was just sort of like a, let's get everything into the issue and let's just kind of hope it works. And I do think that worked for the most part here. And the proletarian is not necessarily the greatest villain ever, but it's an iconic enough look and it's an iconic enough story that it is something people remember about Colossus from this time period. That said, not every instance of trying to pull together multiple threads of older issues always works. Like in the case of Uncanny Annual 3. The Archon story? Just... Uh, okay. It turns out, if you read the book, Archon once appeared to the Avengers previously, something like Avengers 15 and 16, and he returns to New York looking for the Avengers, specifically to find Thor. And he finds Jarvis, and Jarvis is like, no, Thor's not even hanging with the Avengers these days, and the Avengers are nowhere to be found anyway. So Archon's like, oh, well, crap. And Archon's, like, psychic vision friend is like, oh, no problem, there's a backup Thor. Go find this lady. And he just knows how to find the X-Men and just, like, goes there. I, I don't know. It's a little too much. Oh, look, this random character from a zillion years ago that we can use for no reason. And, like, before I get too far into it, because I do have a lot of feelings about this issue. Jonah, how was it for you coming into this character that you didn't know, who was on the cover, who they spend, like, five pages trying to convince you is important? Uh, I I have complicated feelings. Arc this is third this is the third time Archon is on Earth. He's appeared twice, and from what the comic is saying, he's basically an Avengers villain. Um, but we don't know why he's there. We don't know what he's doing back. We just know that he's looking for Thor specifically, and that um I believe like a prophet of from his land, the Vizier. I think that's what the name the Vizier. is. Uh, Vizier is telling him, we have someone else we can use for what we need. Go find her. And originally I thought it was like, is he talking about Jean? Because it kind of looked like Jean a little bit. It, what this little They have, like, I think, a little splash of a woman. And I was like, oh, oh, it's going to be another Jean story. Fine, okay, whatever. Do whatever you want. But like the way 
of what is going to happen that this this annual is broken up into three basically three chapters like the other annuals have been the way that this comes off is Archon comes off much more villain-like and like there's a nefarious plot at hand and I don't like that setup because that's not what his mission actually is instead of asking for help like a normal person he goes straight to violence and tries to kidnap Storm when he eventually does find her. I completely agree. The mislead is, I think, meant to be interesting to the reader, but all the mislead really did was, well, piss me off. Because this is not the most evenly handled story. Now, I'm not one to complain about Danger Room sequences. I love Danger Room sequences, and I think it's really a fun way to establish how the X-Men work together or how their powers work for new readers. But we're treated to eight pages of the X-Men fighting in the Danger Room. And it's really cool to get George Perez doing an eight-page Danger Room scene. But the Danger Room scene serves to show kind of what we all already knew, that Storm is by far the most powerful, if not too powerful. And her powers kind of flare out of control, and once again, someone blows up the fucking Danger Room. And this time it's Storm, and she's like, oh man, I joined the X-Men under the premise that it was to help save the world, and... Now I just feel like a big violence monster. What do I do? And Scott is like, well, you do the best you can. And Storm's like, that's true. NBD. And she goes to her bedroom where she's immediately strangled by Archon. And everybody fights to defend her when he sends her through a portal and teleports her away. And the X-Men are like, no, bring her back. And it's just so much time buying to get us to where we need to be. It's something like, seriously, it's something like 20 pages before we're actually in Archon's world, and he's promised to take them to Storm, and the first thing he does is turn on them, and he's like, no, no, my people, these these are bad people, don't, don't help these X-Men, stop them, and the X-Men, of course, have to keep fighting, so in 25 pages, all they've done is fight and fight and fight. Finally, when they get to Storm... Storm's just sort of okay with this weird plan that seems to be sacrifice yourself to help save this planet. And I get what they're going for. She was just complaining about being a creature of violence, and she was just saying how hard her life is, and she's so bummed by being this violence monster. But I don't think the X-Men are there five minutes before they come up with a plan That means they don't need Storm to die. So the whole setup is such a weird conceit. And then it's like a really hard punch that they pull really hard at the last second. And I I just find it jarring. If this is the only time we're getting Miller, Perez, and Claremont on an X-Men comic, I just feel like the magic is wasted. I agree. Something you said that I completely agree with is that a lot of this issue boils down to time wasting and trying to make it seem plausible that all of these events can happen sequentially as they are written storm when storm is transported away she's not gone for long it's only a matter of maybe five minutes before the x-men figure out how to get to her and in that time that it takes for the x-men to figure out how to get to her She's in a completely different part than from where the X-Men are originally transported to, and she is fully accepting this plan. She Everything's already explained to her. And my problem stems with, you're asking a lot from someone who's al- who seems who's already on board with everything, but you didn't want to ask the other, or explain anything to the X-Men, and it's 
the X-Men always help people, whether or not I think they deserve it or not. They're always willing to help people. Even like Storm of all, all the characters will always like we saw her in with the um the Savage Land. She tried to save the Sun God. She thought that he was still deserving of life no matter how evil he was. So the X-Men are always going to help people and they're always going to do their job as heroes. But instead of giving them that benefit of the doubt, I understand they don't know them, and I'm maybe I'm nitpicking and I could be looking too far into this, but this issue was solved so fast and so many lies and so much damage could have been prevented and saved had they just asked the X-Men for help. And that's really what it always comes down to. So many of these stories are designed to fill 22 pages, to fill 32 pages, to fill 42 pages. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a story that takes some twists and turns and has you think one thing is going to happen and then the payoff is something different. And I enjoy the occasional mislead. I enjoy when a story can keep me on my toes, but it feels less like this story is eager to keep me on my toes and more eager to hit its page count requirement. It just doesn't feel to me like a story that needed 42 pages and to go on for so long. Oh, I completely agree. And something else you said that we you said that we were discussing this that I want to bring up is that this the lesson that Storm learns from all of this, I think, is a little too forced. And I don't think she needs to learn that being a hero has different aspects. And but you, but you're right, you should be able to save people. I don't think it really needed to be. She needed to go to the extreme of I need to sacrifice myself. I think the lesson could have been learned a lot better, not as so heavy handed. I agree. I really agree. I often think heroes saying the only choice is to sacrifice myself is actually selfish and maybe too easy of an out, because once Storm sacrifices herself, she can save no one else. And that's great that she saved these people, but there are more people that will need her. And... I don't know. And even some of this issue, like, some of the solution is a little weird. Like, they blast Cyclops with a whole lot of lightning, and he blasts energy into the sky, because the problem is, like, debris and uh, gravitational stuff is blocking out these people's atmospheres, so they need to blast it away with lightning. I don't even understand how this required her to die in the first place. All said and done, I feel like... This issue is a great example of why annuals frequently lift completely out of the run. Annuals are just a big story, and they don't often tie into what we're going to be looking at. That has to be okay. That has to be fine. As a matter of fact, the next time we're going to be looking at an annual is immediately following the Dark Phoenix saga, and it it's actually a pretty helpful break from that heavy narrative we're going to be in. So it's nice sometimes when the annual comes out of nowhere to soften the blow, but this is an example of an issue where I just don't feel the annual did much. I don't think the annual did much, and the X-Men themselves didn't do much. The really only people here who had dialogue and characterization and lessons learned and character growth and all that good stuff that we want from any characters in a written medium is Storm and Cyclops. The rest of the X-Men team don't actually do anything. Banshee can't even travel with them because he doesn't have his powers. So for a whole chapter, he's completely not there. Which Kurt and Colossus don't do much at all. And 
Logan has one little point where he's a tinkerer, and that's about it. You know, there's very little that Banshee used to give to issues anyway that was constantly a joke we made, and here they're just literally finding whole ways to leave him out. It's unreal. Though, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I have too much left on this annual. Jonah, do you have any final thoughts on Uncanny Annual number three? No, I just think it was a waste of a, of a dream team. I completely agree. And from a waste of a dream team to a shockingly pleasant team-up, Marvel Team-Up 89 is a story that, you know, when I thought about it, I, I said to myself, I'm not sure who wrote this, I bet it's Claremont. And when I looked, sure enough, it was Claremont. He took some time and developed Nightcrawler's backstory a little more, though the whole issue does boil down to just about eight pages of plot. Nightcrawler's out on a date, he sees Arcade's plane, and is like, oh shit, that's Arcade's A, and then instead follows the guy who helped make the circus a miserable experience for him, Yardine, and Amanda's just cool with it. Amanda's like, I'm down. And they go to the circus, and somebody's like, oh, look, it's Spider-Man pointing at Nightcrawler, and Peter Parker just happens to be there taking photos, and is like, well, shit, somebody thinks it's Spider-Man, better go be Spider-Man, and Spider-Man just leaps in, and the bad guy is <laughs> so forgettable. I don't even remember his name, like, Bone Crusher or something? The bad guy is Cutthroat. Cutthroat. Oh, I'm so sorry. Bone Crusher, Crusher Cutthroat, Lacerator cholesterol blocker i don't even know they, just so generic <laughs> omega omega b fatty blocker omega b fatty blocker it's just so it was fun and it was great to see nightcrawler and spider-man team up what's interesting is i don't have a high quality reprint of this one like my wonderful omnibus editions and i didn't see it on marvel digital unlimited so i had to break out my copy which is, of course, from 1979 and on grainy yellowed paper. And it was so funny to see everything go from these bright, beautiful, retouched pages on these crisp white sheets and these high-quality scans to this, like, dingy old comic. And it was really interesting reading it that way because I don't think that helped that I felt that it was kind of like, oh, it was fine. It was a good issue, but it was fine. You know, presentation actually goes a really long way on these books. And I kind of wish I had more to say. It's just a fun couple of pages. It's nice to see Amanda. It's great to see Kurt have so many love stories so quickly together and with a recurring character. Always nice to see Spider-Man. And you know what? That's kind of a funny point. I thought that 123 started like a Spider-Man issue or a Marvel team-up issue because there was so much Spider-Man in the front. I don't think Spider-Man shows up for 10 pages in his own book here. Okay, so something I love about this Marvel team-up is it actually has a couple of really funny one-liners, and, like, all really cute ones, and most of them are by Kurt, and this only furthers my love, as so many of these issues have, for Nightcrawler. Um, one point, he and Amanda are sneaking away, or, or sneaking to the circus where this is all going to go down, and they're in the trunk of the villain's car, and Kurt's like, oh, I've waited so long to get this close to you. And Amanda's like, watch your hands and that tail. And I was like, that's really cute and funny. Um, when he's fighting Cutthroat, uh, Nightcrawler's just like, oh, I'm just so tired. He's like, but what would the point be? What, this, the, um, it, this shouldn't be easy because I'm a dashing, charming, sexy swashbuckler. And that's how it should be. It should be difficult and a challenge. And it's, it's so cute. 
I, um, I totally agree. <laughs> it's really good natured to see Nightcrawler be in such high spirits. It is. He's so playful. And one of my other favorite things is when Nightcrawler is like, oh, me and Spider-Man have so- act similarly. I'm going to pretend to be him to get to draw the killer out. Peter Parker is in the, in the audience of the circus, which if Peter didn't go to the circus, this plan couldn't have even happened. But someone's like, look, it's Spider-Man. And then Peter Parker goes, no, I'm Spider-Man. Like, fully removed from the situation. Yeah. It's so bizarre and fun and light and easy. It was an enjoyable 22 pages. Whereas the other quote unquote nightcrawler centric story this episode, not a fun couple of pages. No, classic 28 is really weird. It's, um, it's a mishmash of an issue that doesn't make much sense. And it has a really weird villain, and the whole plan of to catch this villain, it's all weird and happenstance. I don't... Ugh. Ugh. So, basically, there's a guy who's telling Nightcrawler that he invited a friend here, and her ex-boyfriend or ex-husband is possibly violent, and he, the ex-husband or boyfriend is dressed as a clown and tries to kill her, and there instead kills a dummy, and... Meanwhile, the entire time, there's two people there, and it turns out it's Scott and Jean, and they were making out with each other while disguised, maybe not away. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's everything I don't like about classic X-Men, and it, it's, you know, ten years later, and it doesn't fit, and it's so strange. And other than the fact that the X-Men are in some nifty costumes, and Nightcrawler makes a sexy devil, and I don't know, I actually think, uh, strangely enough, Cyclops is kind of like a super cute jester there's just nothing i particularly liked about that classic x-men story it's not quite as bad as the colossus story that follows but it's pretty bad i agree classic x-men 28 it just has a a lot of weird moments it's a very 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 loose plot and the ex-husband who is supposed to be the killer for some reason thinks he's a clown he's in a clown costume but really starts acting like a clown and it doesn't really make sense he's not a supernatural villain he's not a mutant doesn't have powers he's a regular human who just dresses as a clown and then it's weird like i jokingly said when we were discussing this is this actually about a clown trying to kill his wife because that would be that's a lot funnier and i would i wouldn't want to but I i might hear about the story of a clown dating a woman and then trying to kill her i don't know no i wouldn't i i just lied it's just a bit, just a bad issue. I think we can move on from it. There's nothing good about this issue. I completely agree. You know, so that brings us to classic X-Men 29, which, okay, I get that this over-the-top Colossus story is nestled in the over-the-top Colossus has a weird relationship with his past arc. I super get that, but at the same time, I feel like it's a little too severe. It's the second time we see his family, so we see his little sister and his parents and I don't know. I just kind of feel like everything Colossus is always so melodramatic. It's so Ibsen. It's just so... Ugh. Oh, I agree. Um, I always thought Ileana was a little bit older. I I misremembered her being the person he saved in the in uh, Giant Size X-Men number one. But still, she's very young. And I guess the way Colossus went about it, it made it seem like she's older. 
Um, I don't know. It's she's a lot more brave and actually has a lot more personality in this one issue than he does in his entire appearances so far. Uh, my a lot of this issue boils down to making Colossus live his biggest fear, where he's deemed a traitor to his country. And we know Colossus literally loves his country so much, so it's really upsetting to have him go through this. And but they just cheapen it, and they make and they tell us that it didn't actually matter. Uh, he has w- friends who went into the war with Afghanistan, and uh, one of his surviving friends who lost his limbs blames him for the deaths deaths of his other friends. But because he's a mutant, he can't actually enter the war to begin with. So to make him feel like such crap for however long he's held because he's then arrested and deemed a traitor just to then tell him you're free to go and you couldn't have done anything anyway it really just it just blows it's not a it's not a very fun issue to read no it was really cheap i really agree with you because they give you the threat in the issue and then it's immediately kind of treated as oh well you know not that big a deal because you really couldn't have served anyway so don't worry about it and like it's not exactly don't worry about it, don't worry about anything, but it's up there in the kind of, like, hand-waving it all a little too readily, being a little too okay with it, and I agree with you that I I do ultimately feel like you built this up, and then you completely tear it down in the same story. I get that it went in this issue, because this is where we were talking about Colossus and Russia, but I personally didn't need this narrative. However, Classic 30, by far one of my favorite classics, and I desperately needed that narrative. Instead of getting a weird story about Nightcrawler's present, or a weird story about Colossus's present past, we get Arcade's backstory, and it's weird. This issue, I think, is one of the most bizarre. Um, we've had A couple of classic issues have been a little bit questionable about how bizarre they get this is hands down one of the weirdest things i think we've ever read and i think it completely works i think it goes where it should because we get a little bit we get a little taste a little a little nibble of arcade's backstory in the main issue of 123 um but we actually dive into more about who he is as a villain and a character and what's going on we see we open up on him sleeping and waking up from a nightmare and him hearing that someone's messing around with murder world and through his dialogue and the way he actually goes about and how he's dre- he's in a onesie arcade as much of an adult physically as he is he's still mentally a child he calls murder world his toy he's so disconnected it, it, it no, not disconnected that's not the word i should be saying just oh no yet. i i, I even so... get what you mean he's like disconnected from reality that he doesn't seem to understand like it's not. A, I mean, he thinks that a murder weapon is a toy. No, but that's why I, um, before I get to that point, it, it's such a contrast to see him act very different than he looked. It's a good. It's it's a really good um, character device to have someone look older but still very mentally be a child. But we find out that Arcade is very disconnected from Murder World itself. He doesn't. It's not an actual toy. He sees that someone's messing with it. He's trying to figure out who it is. So he decides, okay, let me go into it. Someone has to be there. And very quickly, he realizes how dangerous it actually is. How dangerous all these contraptions and rooms and robots and monsters that reside within Murder World are. He he straight out says, oh, this is dangerous. And it's he doesn't realize this. 
Arcade is a literal hitman for hire who's killed I don't know how many people using Murder World, but like he didn't it never connected with them until this very moment. And it's so interesting because I think one of the greatest things about Arcade as a villain is that he's just sadistic and evil. There's there isn't while he does have a tragic backstory, it's not we're not supposed to feel bad for him. Arcade is just pure evil and it's I think it's nice to have in a villain. Agreed, because if we humanize Arcade too far, it makes everything he does either too sinister or too silly. By making Arcade, I guess for lack of a better term, as deranged, spoiled little rich boy as he is, we're confronted with the problems with that. I don't think I have too much left on this episode. Jonah, this has been a fun ride for us. We've taken a look at three issues of Uncanny X-Men that featured the return of Arcade, minor appearances of a few other villains like Black Tom and Juggernaut and Crack. We got to get some highlights from some great X-Men. The backups weren't terrible, and we even had a fun Marvel team-up for a change. Of course, the annual washed that right out with balance, didn't it? So, next episode, we're going to be covering Proteus. The Mutant X Saga, one of the most beloved early stories, and I can't wait for us to jump into that one. But until then, Jonah, where can your fans find you online? If you would like to find me and reach out to me online, you could find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, this is one of, I think, one of the most universally fun episodes that we've had. A lot of these issues were just a little bit light. They're a little bit campy, fun, a little bit easy to read outside of the annual but that's neither here nor there. Nico, if people want to reach out to you online, where could they find you? You know, I super agree with that assessment of this episode, and you can find my awesome comic book, Kid Riot, at kidriotcomics.com. You can check me out on this amazing podcast network with my husband doing mcu.html, which is, of course, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Husbands Talking More or Less, where uh, we take a look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and break down its components. There's other episodes of X's for Podcast where myself, Jonah, our wonderful boyfriend Kevo, and our best friend Kyle talk about all sorts of comics in order, so you want to check out those episodes as well, as well as my childhood best friend and I, Chris, taking a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series and Now and Again. And if all of that isn't enough Nico for you, you can find me on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right, guys. So, until those X-genes go crazy again, we'll catch you. See ya!